Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 47th episode of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, a podcast all about the subject of antinatalism created by antinatalists. My name is Amanda Oldfansukanik, formerly known as Forever Wolf Films on YouTube. And I'm Mark J. Maharaj, also known as Question Mark on YouTube. And today, we're speaking with Professor of Philosophy at the University of Haifa and author of the books, Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World, and Is Philosophy Androcentric? As well as his paper, Benatar on the Badness of All Human Lives. Ido Landau, uh, welcome to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, Ido. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. Uh, I want to start off with the most basic question. Who is Ido Landau? Ah, well, <laughs> uh, I don't think that... Um... Um, I have many exciting things to, to tell about myself. Uh, I teach at the University of Haifa, and I've been uh, very interested uh, in recent years in meaning uh, in life and meaning of life. Um, the, the interest started after uh, one of my students um, exclaimed uh, out of the blue in one of the classes that she thinks that life is meaningless. And then we started talking about it. And uh, I saw that there are many interesting things to say about meaning of life and meaning in life, and that uh, some, uh, some people were helped, uh, I thought, by philosophical discussions of uh, meaning in life. And some of them actually felt much better or managed to see uh, meaning in their lives, whereas earlier they didn't see it. Or, even uh, create meaning in their lives. And then I also um, uh, volunteered uh, for uh, uh, several years uh, for the Israeli Cancer Association uh, in, uh, um, well, what might be called lay chaplaincy. I um, um, took a course and then I um, more or less um, accompanied the terminally ill cancer patients to their deaths. And with them too, I, I talked quite a lot, uh, among other things, uh, about meaning uh, in life and meaning of life. And I, I thought that in some cases, I, I perhaps managed to help them as well. So uh, this is um, some of my background and interest uh, in, in this topic. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, Ido, if I may ask, why are you or why are you not an antinatalist? Right. So um, I should say that I don't know enough about antinatalism to to pass uh, uh, to express uh, a view of uh, for or against. Uh, my field is actually meaning of life and meaning in life, and uh, I haven't read very much the pros and cons and the debates. And um, you know, in our education, uh, what we're supposed to do is to um, read quite a lot and then think quite a lot about what we read and then try to um, suggest a position. And I don't think I'm really in a position to do that. I do not know that much about antinatalism. So my interest um, uh, uh, in, uh, in uh, Professor David Benatar's uh, work was mostly uh, uh, related to what he wrote about um, about um, pleasure and pain in life or meaningfulness and meaninglessness in life, um, which um, has to do, I think, with uh, his views uh, on antinatalism, 
but about antinatalism itself, I'm afraid I don't know very much. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always curious to ask people this question uh, that, that have uh, any familiarity with the subject at all. Outside of Wikipedia, the, world, the word antinatalism is not included uh, in any dictionary in the world. It's not defined by any dictionary in the world uh, in, in any language. Do you have any thoughts on how the term antinatalism should be defined? Uh, no, I'm afraid I, I, uh, I don't have any thoughts about that, also because of ignorance about the topic. I would like, however, to express amazement that no dictionary has this as an item. I mean, this is uh, very, very odd. It, it is incredible. It, it's, it's a very, very strange circumstance. Um, a couple of years ago, I petitioned twice for the Oxford English Dictionary to include it. And it was uh, unfortunately unsuccessful. Um, and that was, yeah, that, that was a number of years ago, actually now more than two. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't quite know how to make that happen, but it is, it is strange. Yeah. It's a strange circumstance. Um, yeah. you, I, I'm curious if you have any feelings on how antinatalism uh, intersects with other social or ethical issues, um, such as atheism, veganism, and the right to die. And even if you don't um, have any thoughts about how perhaps antinatalism intersects with those things, I, I'm curious just what your general feelings are on those other uh, subjects. Well, I myself uh, am a vegetarian, and there were times in which uh, I was also vegan. I'll probably return to veganism uh, in the future. I myself am not uh, am not a theist. I'm an atheist. Um, but uh, again, because I don't know very much, uh, I don't know anything at all, almost about uh, antinatalism. I, I cannot say anything uh, sensible, I think, about the relation of these views to antinatalism. P particularly because you have worked with people that um, are dying of cancer and you, you've done that, that, that kind of work. Do you have any uh, thoughts on the right to die? Um, yes, I, uh, I'm a staunch supporter of the right to die. Yeah, a very staunch supporter. Wonderful, um, we are as well, yeah. And, um, um, I tried anything I could to help people prepare ahead. And uh, in, in my country, there is a possibility um, if, um, if one prepares ahead uh, sufficient, in sufficient um, uh, um, uh, time, um, um, one can actually see that one's life at least is not prolonged unnecessarily. Um, and I always advise this, and um, for me too, I, I signed everything possible not to have my life prolonged when that would not be necessary or helpful. Yes, I, I'm a very strong supporter of the right to die in, in, in many, many uh, instances. Um, um, I saw people in pain notwithstanding modern technology that, um, that can help people in pain. Well, not all people and not all, all pains. And I saw people suffering in ways that I would be surprised whether in the most terrible dictatorships in the worst torture chambers, people suffer as much. Not that I can compare or know, but but I saw very sad and terrible and unnecessary things. So yes, that's my view about that.
Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about that. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, I'd love to spend some time talking about your paper, Benatar and the Badness of All Human Lives, which was published May 2020. Would you mind if I read the abstract to this paper or would you like oh, to? Okay, oh, wonderful. Please go ahead. Okay, absolutely. Um, this paper presents a critique of David Benatar's argument on the badness of all human lives. I argue that even if Benatar is right, that there is an asymmetry between good and the bads bad in life so that each unit of bad is indeed more effective than each unit of good. Lives in which there is a lot of good and only a little bad are still overall good. Even if there is more unfulfilled than, un than fulfilled desires in life, a distinction should be drawn between desires to fulfill important goals and desires to fulfill trivial ones. And Benatar's claim is untrue of the former. Benatar's claim is that we cannot really know that the quality of our lives is good is problematic. And even if it were true, it would not show that we cannot estimate correctly the quality of other people's lives, which is the point uh, at issue. So, uh, Mark and I enjoyed this paper when we were reviewing it for the interview. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how this paper came about? Um, well, um, at the year that uh, David Benatar published his uh, The Human Predicament, I published uh, my uh, Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World. And uh, that was um, several years ago in 2017. And we present more or less uh, opposed views on, on, on some issues, on many issues. Um, so it was very interesting for me to read his book. I thought it was, it is a very, very good book. And uh, about various issues, uh, I of course felt challenged and um, I, I reflected about what he wrote. And I thought that I might have some replies to some of the arguments. And this is why I decided to write uh, these papers. Uh, I wrote uh, that paper and another paper that I wrote, um, which I think is called um, 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 uh, Two Arguments About the Badness and Meaninglessness of Life, also refers to this book and discusses some other arguments of Benatar's. Uh, it was also published in 2020 uh, in another journal. and. Um, Yes, uh, this is why I, uh, I published uh, this, uh, I wrote and published this paper. Now, this second article that you just brought up, that's different from the article that you presented at uh, the Antinatalism Under Fire conference, am I correct? Yes, in the Antinatalism okay. Under Fire uh, 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 conference, uh, I read a paper that was the basis of the paper we are discussing now. I see, okay, okay, excellent, excellent. May I ask if Benatar ever responded in any kind of way? And if so, what was his response? Right, so uh, at the conference, uh, uh, Benatar uh, was present and uh, he made some uh, valuable uh, distinctions and he suggested some replies, which uh, helped me very much uh, to um, um, improve some of my arguments and um, Changed some of them. Uh, at the end of my paper, I thank a few people, and certainly I, I thank him. Uh, I am not aware of a general paper that he wrote in reply to this paper after it was published. But uh, um, you know, it came out only last year, so it, he may very well publish a paper that would reply to my paper. 
Um, there's two quotes that I'd like to bring up uh, to have your comments on. Um, the first one is, uh, however, note that even if there are only few good lifers, moreover, even if there is only one, the Benatar's universal claim, which is supposed to hold for all lives, is incorrect. And then the other quote is, to the extent that Benatar's arguments about the badness of all lives are the basis for his antinatalism, I believe that antinatalism, too, is shaken. None of Benatar's arguments discussed here succeeds in showing that it would be better for good lifers not to have been born. Um, I was curious about the basis for Benatar's antinatalism, how, like that specific phrase. Um, how did you, how did you come, like, from my understanding, his basis is the axiological asymmetry, not necessarily the net suffering of all bad lives. Right, yeah. yeah. So uh, in his uh, um, uh, 2006 uh, book, um, Better Never to Have Been, um, uh, most of the book is indeed dedicated to the asymmetry argument and developments of it and replies. Towards the end, he does mention also that uh, life, uh, life is not happy or life is not good, and that this is also important. Um, though this is not the central discussion, it is part of the book. And um, I think that in some of the conferences that uh, uh, um, uh, were held afterwards about the book, some of the participants indeed discussed that aspect of his argument. Uh, for example, uh, I think uh, Sol Smilansky published uh, a paper which is called uh, Life is Good or Life is Happy or something like that, and perhaps some, a few other people. Um, I think that even in the, the Human Predicament, which is the book that I focused on, um, in several places, he does mention the relation. For example, I think that um, on page two, he writes, even uh, the best lives contain more bad than good. So that suggests, again, a universal claim. And while some lives are better than others, uh, none are non-comparatively non or objectively good, which is, again, a universal argument. And uh, in uh, a few places there, he does, uh, although not very uh, um, cohesively, relate this also to his general views about antinatalism. So I agree that uh, the, the central uh, argument for uh, Benatar's antinatalism has to do with the asymmetry argument. But he does support his view um, also with discussions about the goodness or badness of lives. And um, um, I think that even if uh, he would agree that the discussions about goodness or badness of life uh, or his views about the goodness or badness of lives um, for some reason do not work or are weaker than he thought, still he has his main argument. But that is still part of the structure and he's interested in that and he thinks that it is another thing that supports his views. What do you think about his asymmetry? Uh, well, I should say again that I don't know enough about that, but as I see it, 
I, I'm, I remain unconvinced. I see their symmetry. So um, as I see it, um, if we know, it's very difficult, of course, to know, but uh, if we know that uh, a certain person would have had a wonderful life, then um, it's a pity for her or him that uh, they didn't have that life. And I don't see the difference between this and saying that if we know that a certain person would have a terrible life, then um, it's good for him or her not to have had that terrible life. Um, I think that uh, even if we know that a certain person would have a wonderful life, we do not have a duty to to bring this person into the world because we pay a high price, for example, as parents or care, caregivers. Um, we we uh, pay a high price for that, but um, for the person, him or herself, if we can construct as a hypothetical construct, the real person and the, um, uh, that might have been uh, had uh, he or she came into the world and then compare it to their non-existence, I think that they lose in one case and they win in another case. I see there is symmetry. Okay, thanks. Um, I was I, you, in in this paper. You talk a, a lot about good lifers and bad lifers. I just I was just wondering if you could define those terms uh, a bit for us. Right. right. So uh, I, I first have to say that uh, my views uh, a bit changed a bit, um, um, but um, uh, and I don't think that I can define uh, good lifers, but um, I'll try to characterize them. So uh, I think that um, when we think about good lifers or people who have good lives, one thing that we can uh, um, uh, say, characterize, uh, one characteristic is that their lives are meaningful. And um, uh, meaningful lives need not to be happy lives. One can have lives that do include suffering, even quite a lot of suffering, and uh, maybe some unhappiness, but still be meaningful. And I would still take these lives, such lives to be good lives. Now, another thing that uh, um, um, I would uh, like uh, to present as a characteristic here is taken from uh, an article uh, by uh, Thomas Nagel, an article called Death from 1970. And there he says that uh, he thinks that in life there are good experiences and there are bad experiences, but as a background to all of these experiences, the very fact of experiencing or being alive, being awake, uh, is something good and pleasurable. So even if there is uh, uh, an equal number of good experiences and bad experiences, or an equal number of good experiences and bad experiences of uh, similar weight or volume, Still, this would be a good life in his view because the background there is so important. You'll need, as he sees it, a much larger uh, um, quantity and quality 
uh, and higher uh, quality of bad experiences to override both the good experiences and this basic um, background. Now, um, I, um, I accept this. I think this is true. I disagree with him in his uh, universalist uh, presentation of it. He thinks that this is true of all people. I do not think it is true of all people. I do think it is true of many, many people. I think that depressed people uh, do not have this background uh, uh, um, uh, pleasure of living or being or sensing or experiencing. Uh, I think that in uh, older people, it is also weakened considerably, and there are some differences between people about it. Also, this uh, what might be called background music, background good music, can be um, overridden by, um, by bad experiences uh, that are cacophonic, that are very, very unpleasant and are very loud. And some people can also divert their attention uh, from this background music, so to say. They can also um, bring their attention to this. Uh, so I'm uh, less of a uni universalist than he is, um, but I think many, many people have that. And it is a very important uh, factor in the goodness of their lives. Now, besides that, there are, of course, all those specific experiences. So some experiences are good and some facts, not only experiences are also good. So um, I don't know, warm personal relationships or close personal relationships are good and uh, doing moral things is very important and good. And uh, aesthetic uh, experiences uh, of, of maybe human made art are very good and pleasure of the beauty of nature is, is, is a very good. Um, and there are some more things that, that are good. Pleasure is usually also good. And there are also um, many bad experiences. So uh, desolation and disappointment and uh, sorrow and loneliness and um, um, exposure to, to ugly or dreadful phenomena and so on and so forth. And um, I think that uh, um, good lives are lives in which uh, there are, there is a sufficient degree, a high degree of uh, good experiences and uh, a low, a relatively low degree of uh, bad experiences and then a sturdy, strong um, background, background feeling, uh, which can be both physical and emotional. A pleasant feelings in one, general pleasant feeling in one's body, not, uh, not related to eating chocolate or scratching your, your skin after a mosquito bites it. A general feeling in one's body and in one's, I don't know, emotion that uh, that is behind everything there, which is very important. That's how I would see a good life, and a bad life does not have that, of course. Okay, okay, interesting. No, thank you so much for defining for uh, explaining those terms uh, in 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 so much detail. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, the following questions. I mean, some of them are perhaps less questions than just sort of. I'm just curious to know your thoughts. Um, so I, I I'm not totally. 
I'm always confused when people talk about a good life and a bad life or what a, what a net good life is or what a net bad life is. Um, because I, I, I find it confusing to determine that when the person never gets to see the scoreboard, essentially. It's, it's sort of something that often, you know, it, something that they don't get to assess because they don't get to actually see, have a distance from their seeing their full life, you know, after it's gone. They never get to factor in um, the lived experience of their own death. Um, so what, do, you have, do you have any thoughts on that at all? I mean... Um. Yes, I think that in, in some cases, well, first of all, I, I should say that when we evaluate or estimate the goodness or badness of lives, we certainly should be modest. We cannot um, say that what we say is certain and it is certainly not precise, but I think that uh, we should uh, also not uh, defeatistically uh, um, refrain from any judgment because no judgments uh, or evaluations um, uh, are sufficiently informed. I think that uh, just as we can talk about a day, I mean, part of a life, an hour or a day as good or meaningful or a week, a month, a year, a decade. So we can also talk about larger parts of lives such as the first 60 years and say that these decades were good, these decades were bad and so on, or the first 80 years um, and um, of course, we don't know how it would end. I think that uh, in Greek tragedy, they like to repeat that. And uh, maybe at the end, things would become very bad, but um, uh, maybe they won't. Sometimes we can speak with people until the very end of their lives, or we can see from outside more or less what is happening there. And even if the latter part of their lives is not very good, Usually older age is significantly less happy than earlier times. Um, we can perhaps say, okay, so there were 70 good years and then uh, three not very good or maybe terrible years. And uh, still on in all, all in all, maybe uh, it seems like, uh, like a good life or a bad life. Um, I think also that um, there are cases in which things happen after one passes away that uh, they do reflect on life. So a person who, I don't know, saved all his life to, to establish an orphanage after uh, she dies. And then after she dies, uh, I don't know, the crooked uh, lawyer takes the money and then spends it in a casino. Okay, so that does affect the, the life, even if it's an event that happened after the life. But in most cases, uh, I'm not sure that there are so many potentialities that are, are, are not actualized after one's, one passes away. Now, as for death itself, um, I think that sometimes we can have some estimation about how terrible it is. So some deaths are, uh, th there is a great variety, I think. Some deaths are, uh, are very short. I mean, some strokes um, kill people instantaneously. And uh, some, uh, some deaths are longer. And um, we can sometimes have a good estimation whether it was painful or not painful. Um, some people uh, 
whom I accompanied to their deaths, um, uh, received quite a lot of uh, morphium while they were dying in the last days. And I think that they did not suffer much. Some other people uh, did suffer, unfortunately. And some people suffer quite a lot. And again, maybe, maybe, maybe it makes sense to say, well, this person had a good life and the last five days were, were very unpleasant. Um, sometimes we can also talk with people who uh, died, almost died, or even died clinical death, and then were brought, they were saved or brought back to, to life. So I'm not speaking about those people who tell you that when they were dead, the two angels came and accompanied them in a tunnel of light to heaven, but people who tell you that over their physical or, or other experiences in the process of, of the, the unpleasant, uh, usually unpleasant, uh, um, I don't know, even suffocation or whatever it was. Now, um, 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 Nagel, Thomas Nagel, which I mentioned earlier with his, uh, uh, in his um, um, paper called Death, mentions there that the worst thing in dying is that you die afterwards. If you wouldn't have died afterwards, it was just unpleasant suffering. And some of this suffering is considerable, but some people suffer much worse and, and don't die. And we don't think it is so terrible. Many, I know, people who are burned by fire uh, um, and, and, and have burns, suffer quite a lot and then they heal. And since they don't die, we, we don't think it is that terrible. I think that this might be true of some cases or some uh, processes that we call dying. So I do think that we perhaps can have some estimations, uh, informed evaluations of what would be a good life and what would be a bad life. If we cannot, then the whole uh, criticism, my whole criticism of Benatar's book, of course, uh, is unhelpful, but also the whole of Benatar's book is unhelpful as well, the, the whole the human predicament, because he wants to say that life is bad. And if we cannot say whether it is good or bad, then, then uh, both, uh, both what he writes and what I write about him uh, uh, don't, don't get off the ground. Well, if I can, if I can jump in, I mean, I, I, I think it just from my opinion, I mean, life is all kinds of stuff. It's good. It's good and bad. And it, all of this, maybe all of this possibility of badness is very shaky ground, in my opinion, to perform a biological, to, to justify creating a bio, doing a biological experiment, which is essentially how I would view procreation. It's, it's, it's performing a biological experiment with a feeling thing and throwing them into this world of possibility that includes all of this possible exposure to badness. Um, mm -hmm. So procreation is often metaphored by antinatalists as a rolling of a dice, gambling. Uh, no individual uh, that's the, a product of procreation uh, no good life or even all bad good sorry no good life or even all good all good lives exist in vacuums the best of lives never get to exist in a world by themselves 
they have won the positive dice roll while the majority are rolling, you know, a snake eyes. And I, I, it, I, it's hard for me to understand why that's good. <laughs> like why that circumstance of the best lives existing when the reason why they, you know, exist can't happen without these other bad lives also existing. They don't get their goodness for free. Um, and that creates a very negative circumstance for good lives. It doesn't, it doesn't come without this cost of the bad lives having to exist. Um, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that exactly. Um, um, may, may I ask something uh, about of course, yes. so, so, I, so I'll try to understand better. Uh, so when you say that the good lives come with a price, you mean that the, the, the people who have good lives are, uh, um, have these lives because they exploit maybe economically the, the people that have bad lives and this is immoral and you mean it in that way? Well, I, I think that, that that can be part of it. Um, there can also be, you know, misanthropic arguments on top of it too. I think a lot of good lives are won because they're getting gaining their satisfaction through uh, various nefarious supply, essentially. I mean, uh, a rapist may have a great life because they're getting what they want or somebody that's, you know, gaining a great life through eating nothing but, you know, cheeseburgers created out of animal misery. You know, we can, we can maybe say those are great lives. They're having a great time, but can we really call that good if their goodness is being created out of, uh, out of misery, out of pain, out of suffering, but just, but I think what I'm, what I'm more saying with, with uh, the previous comment is that, good lives don't ever get to exist in a world where there aren't also bad lives. They don't, they, you know, procreation doesn't, um, is this dice roll where you may have, you may have, you may create these negative lives, you may create these positive lives and to, for those positive lives to exist, you're also going to create a whole bunch of misery. And I'm saying that that puts a that puts a very negative, that puts people that are enjoying their lives in a very negative position. And I think negates a lot of the good. Um, and for it not to negate the good is a little bit nihilistic about, that's very nihilistic about other people's pain. Um, yeah. Right. So, um, um, so maybe we have here uh, uh, Two, two ways of thinking about it. Uh, the first has to do with uh, immoral behavior, such as, for example, the rapist. And um, uh, as I uh, characterized earlier, good lives, uh, the rapist's life is not a good life. Uh, I mean, maybe he's enjoying himself, but that's a terrible life. That's not how uh, I, I would see a good life. And uh, I think that it is possible for people to have good lives without hurting uh, other people, or if they hurt other people, um, maybe um, if they are trying to be modest in all sorts of ways, not drink a lot of champagne uh, and uh, I don't know, take a lot of uh, super jets and uh, eat a lot of meat and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think that if they uh, um, uh, donate or contribute, or try to do good to other people, especially to the people who are suffering, maybe people who are suffering, for example, in third world countries that form some kind of a basis for, for the better lifestyle, 
uh, I think that this can ease things a bit and maybe their lives can still, of the good lifers, as I see good lifers, can still be seen as good. Um, I think that in general, if people would, would maybe um, be less narcissistic and uh, try uh, to live more modestly, many of these problems could be solved. Now, the, the, the second way of, of looking at it, if, if I understood you correctly, uh, has to do with, uh, I don't know, maybe some kind of a statistical necessity. If people are coming to the world, at least some of them will, will suffer. Maybe some will feel great, but maybe it is necessary, necessary, necessary statistically that some people, for example, will be born with a very painful genetic uh, illnesses and they'll suffer. So if we allow people to be born, then some people will live good lives and others will, be, will live bad lives. And I think this is a big problem, but I'm trying to think of it in, in a way that, that uh, uses um, um, a thought experiment suggested by um, uh, an American philosopher called John Rawls. And uh, I'm presenting it in a simpl simplified form, actually a shallow form, um, and quite different from what he intended. Um, let's say that I'm not born yet and I don't know how I will be born. I might be born to a very poor family in Bangladesh, or I might be born, uh, I don't know, to middle-class family in Manhattan, and there are many other options. And I also do not know my health and, uh, and many other things. I don't know anything, but I have these statistics. Now, as I understand good life, what, what is it to have a good life? And since I think that many people have a lot of good experiences, also a lot of bad experiences, but a lot of good experiences, and many people also have uh, this uh, basic background I, I, I talked earlier about. Not all people, but many people. It is very, very common, um, including very simple people who, who live very simple lives and are not very rich at all and suffer from all sorts of things. Um, I, I know quite a few such people, both from traveling and also from my country. Um, I think that there is a high probability, as I see a good life, I think that there is a high probability that people would land, even if in economically bad places, that people would land in a good life. So if I had to, to decide whether to be born or not, and I wouldn't know where and how and what the sequences of life would be, there might be another war exactly after I, 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 I'm born or 12 years afterwards, it would also be terrible. Um, I, I would decide to be born. This is, this is what I, I choose. Maybe others would not choose that. Now, if, if this is true, what I'm saying, and as many other things I'm saying here, there is an if here, a big if. If this is true, then, um, um, if I would be, if I would find myself, for example, with this very painful illness that cannot be treated and so on, very, and, and um, I, I, will, I will be unhappy that I've been dealt a bad hand 
but I would not think that the other people did anything bad for me. Uh, I'm sorry, did anything bad to me. So uh, yes, uh, we were uh, playing this game, so to say, and uh, many got what I see as a good hand and I got a bad hand and, and it's very unfortunate, but they are not sinning against me or against anyone else. And if they enjoy their good life, I, I think it is fine. I chose to be born and I took this risk and maybe they chose to be born and they took this risk and it went well for them. It didn't go well for me. I don't think that there is anything wrong about, about the goodness of their lives, as long as they do not exploit me, of course, or use me in some way. Are you familiar at all with the story of the one who walked away from Omalas? It's a, I'm blanking on the, but maybe Mark knows the author's name. I'm completely blanking on the author. Ursula Le Guin. Ursula, yeah, Ursula K. Le Guin. Thank you so much, Mark. And it's it's a story of a, you know, a, the bright, shiny town on the hill, essentially, where everybody is, everybody has lots and lots of meaning. Everybody is very happy. Everybody is, is um, uh, thriving. You know, it's a, it's a perfect utopia, essentially, except that there's this one child in the dungeon and the, the, the bright, shiny utopia cannot exist unless this child is being tortured. And, you know, that's, it, that's often a, a very, um, it's, a, it's a very favorited story about, uh, by antinatalists because it sort of metaphors a lot of what I think we're talking about that I cannot see how any amount of meaning or pleasure or happy days justifies the torture of that one child. So it's not that I begrudge or think that the, the people that are living these happy lives are, are sinning or they, they're, they're, they're completely innocent to the, to the dice roll that they've been thrown into. Um, but the critique is that I cannot, I cannot see any justification in rolling that dice in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. That maybe there will be all of this meaning, maybe there will be all of this uh, this joy or, or pleasure in life. Um, but the the very possibility of there being anything resembling that child in the dungeon, it's just it's just a it, it's a it's a it completely uh, prevents me from playing that game, essentially. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I do not know the story and uh, I will go read it. Thank you. Okay, of course. <laughs> Very interesting. Can I say just one more thing? Uh, of course. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this comes to suicide. Now, um, um, I, I know that uh, David Benatar distinguishes very sharply between internationalism and, and suicide. Um, and I think that there is a distinction. Uh -huh. However, I think that the option of suicide in many cases is, um, is not, perhaps not that terrible or not that hard and uh, shouldn't be avoided at all costs or at so many costs. So if life is very bad, I, I know that it's also not easy, but I think it's also not that difficult if, if one thinks about it more and maybe education changes a bit. If one finds oneself in this dungeon, there is a way out. 
Well, the question though, you know, I think is why should I be put in a position to kill myself because somebody had a notion in their head about life being good and decided to play a biological experiment with my sentience? Right. You know, mm -hmm. people can just as easily find meaning in some other game other than procreation and gamble with somebody else's well-being. And so, right. you know, I, 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 it's not, it should not be, the onus should not be put on me to try to murder myself in a world where we don't have the right to die in most places in the world, you know, and, 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 and even if we do, uh, you, you know, often you have to be terminally ill. There's all kinds of hoops you have to jump through. So, you know, an 18 year old who is absolutely miserable, you know, um, and by all, you know, rights should have, have the ability to say no more, doesn't have that right. So it's, it, you know, it, at the, I, I would say that at the very least, why aren't people fixing this world to make that possible? F fixing the right, the circumstance around the right to die before they're procreating. You know, mm -hmm. if, 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 if you're going to force somebody to say yes to life by creating them, at least make it possible for them to exit this world because just because we hate life or not hate life or, 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 or are not satisfied with our lives, perhaps or th those particular individuals doesn't mean they want to be in pain. Doesn't mean they want the terror of having to shoot themselves in the head. Doesn't mean they haven't become addicted to living. May I uh, yeah. interject? Absolutely. Uh, sorry. Um, you mentioned Nagel and uh, his death paper. Are you a deprivationist when it comes to the badness of death? Like, do you think death is a, is a bad? I think that when life is good, and I take life usually to be good, yes, death is, ba is bad because it does not let us continue a good thing. So I am a student of Nagel in that sense, yes. Okay, I just, I just wanted to add that into this, uh, what you're both talking about. Yeah. No, yeah. it's definitely an important point. Yeah. yeah. Um, can I ask another question? Or, of or... course you can. Yes, please. Yes. Okay. Uh, um, um, th this is not some kind of a counter argument. It's just continuing to think about it together. Uh, are you always against sacrificing someone for the benefit of the others? I'm thinking uh, of this perhaps, well, I'm thinking of this, for example, in cases of war. Let us say that we have maybe a just war, maybe World War II in some parts of it was like that or or maybe the people in some of the ghettos, like the Warsaw ghetto, when they had a mutiny, were like that. And um, um, let us say that to save many people, I don't know, maybe two, 50, 100, we have to send someone to her or his death, clear death. Would you always think that that is an immoral thing to do? No, um, I do believe that it was the correct thing to do to fight the Nazis, for instance. I, I, so I, I do believe that that was a, a justifiable war. Would I create new soldiers? Would I, would I procreate the next generation in order to go to that battle? No. I wouldn't. I would try to find other means of, of stopping that evil. I believe that we ha we'd have a, an ethical duty to prevent that evil from continuing. 
but I also don't believe that it justifies creating the next generation to sacrifice to that fight. Hmm. Very interesting. Thank you. If I if if this is if I understand you correctly, uh, from your view about the meaning of life, you believe, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, meaning is good um, in and of itself. The point I'm trying to make with this question is uh, Kant's idea of ends in, this, in themselves. So Amanda would probably say that it would be justified to sacrifice one to save the many. I would say that's a justifiable position insofar that it's like um, it's a it's a necessary evil. But I'm a Kantian, and I would say that that's necessary evil. Evil. So like animal experimentation, right? We we kill animals um, and torture animals pretty much for the greater good. I still say that's an evil. Yeah. So I think it's morally wrong. But to say to 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 save. Um, well, you know, just the whole pandemic that we're going through. Uh, this was a necessary evil. So that's how I would answer the question. And I guess what I was trying to ask was, do you evaluate situations based on, um, like, well, I, like uh, uh, between like a utilitarian or a deontological approach? Like, uh, were you were you were you trying to find like a moral answer, or what would be permissible kind of answer, or does that not even? Or am I not well, making sense? A, a moral answer about what would be morally permissible, also okay. maybe morally obligatory, but if not morally obligatory, morally permissible. And mm -hmm. uh, um, I'm uh, I'm um, working with various uh, uh, ethical methodologies, so I try to take both uh, from utilitarianism and from Kantianism and from uh, virtue ethics. That's what I do too. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, um, even if uh, uh, what I said about some cases of war where you are using actually one person's life as a means and a means only, because it's not that uh, they're risking their lives and maybe they'll they'll survive, maybe they won't, and but it didn't get well. So may maybe in such cases. You can say that they're both means and ends because other people might get hurt, maybe. But no, there are cases in which you're sending someone to clear death and you're using them as means. And by that, you save the lives of many, many people. And um, here it's very difficult to justify this in Kantian terms. And uh, it's easy, of course, to justify this in utilitarian terms. But of course, utilitarianism in general has also its, uh, its many problems. Um, but I would take this to be a justified thing to do in, in some cases in war. Now, that doesn't mean that this is the same case as the, the, the child in the dungeon. There might be some differences there. Um, the way I tried to, I tried to present things had more, had more to do with uh, some kind of a thought experiment, uh, which was easier for intuitions, because it's not that the people of this city, I, I will go to read the story, I don't know it, are uh, forcing one child to be in a dungeon, but that we're all kind of making some kind of uh, 
of, uh, I don't know, we're taking a risk. Now that too is not completely true because children who are born are not, do not actually live before that and they're asked this question and they're taking a risk. But, uh, so I can see the problem here, but uh, yes, um, I certainly have to think much more about it. Your reaction to suicide, that it's accessible and, and you know, you can do it, right? Um, as someone who's arguing for uh, meaning in life and good lives, um, how, because antinatalists get this quite frequently, you know, if it's bad, just opt out. I'm curious about that comment if you are, if you do agree with Nagel, right? Like, I, I'm very, because conf- like for me, I'm also a deprivationist. Benatar's a deprivation, uh, actually, He's a deprivation and an, well, he presents um, the annihilation account for the badness of death as well. Um, so even if lives are bad, death is also bad. I guess that's his whole predicament, right? <laughs> um, and uh, so f- for me, it's like uh, even, it just seems like a bad case scenario. And um, I'm just curious how you would respond to that. Um, like, do you actually think, like, it comes across to me and uh, a little bit, maybe psychologically and maybe possibly philosophically uh, harsh to say, well, death, uh, killing yourself is easy. So if you don't like it, kind of opt out. Like, this is, this is kind of how I'm reading, reading it, and I might be misinterpreting it, but. Right. Um, well, um, uh I, I accept Nagel's uh, view, and uh, I think that his, um, his explanation why death is bad works as long as we think that life is good. When life is bad, then death, I don't think is bad. I think death is good. Now, we have to qualify this a bit. Maybe life is bad now, but it will become good soon. We have good reasons to believe so. So then, of course, we shouldn't uh, die, we should bear this crisis and then continue to have a good life. But if we're certain that life is bad and continue will, uh, to, will continue to be bad, um, if life is like that, then I think death is good. There's nothing so, wrong. So I guess why, why, the, why can't it be both bad? Why? I'm so like uh, life, be, so like, let's say the case is that um, a person has uh, their life is net suffering, right? Net bad. And um, it would improve. Right. And uh, they have an option to kill themselves. And this is a way to alleviate suffering. Um, though I have some problems with the framing of that. I think there's a difference between elimination and reducing. But um, I think like, why can't I just say, hey, having, having your life suck is bad. And then also having to kill yourself is also bad. Like both are bad. Why, you know what I mean? Um, not completely. As um, if, if the process of dying is full of suffering, then I understand it better. Uh, maybe I should also say that I think that in many, many cases in which life is bad, it can be improved. You don't need to, to, to go for, for suicide. But when it cannot be improved and it's very bad, I cannot see why death is bad. It seems to me that 
I don't know, we were in a bad party, right? It's noisy, people aren't pleasant, so we leave. Why so, is this bad? Nagel, uh, the paper that you mentioned before the death paper, his argument was that experience is the good thing, right? It, it like, and you also argue that even if your life is pretty bad, there can be significant meaning, right? And so if those are annihilated, even if I have a bad life, then that would be inherently, uh, intrinsically bad, would it not? Uh, well, when I talk about a, a bad life, I mean also a life in which there is no meaning or very little meaning or maybe even negative meaning, if there is such a thing, anti-meaning. Okay. And uh, also that this background feeling, uh, which is also, by the way, he mentions this only in one short paragraph in his death article, the same article. This background, uh, I, I inflated it a bit. I, uh, I talk about, I, I think it's more important than he does. Uh, um, but also that there, this background feeling is not there. So it is bad in, in all those measures, in all those spheres. Um, I do not see why death would be bad. Okay. Okay. I I I I could spend like hours nip <laughs> picking on this one, but we should really um, move on to something. Right. But thank you for sharing your views. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your views. Thank you. Um, so a, a quote from your paper. Um, it is true, of course, not only of dogs, but also of zebras, elephants, dolphins, giraffes, chimpanzees, whales, deer, and any species whatsoever. According to this argument, we might be doing them a favor if we found a way to stop all of them from multiplying. Thus, we would soon have a very silent planet. Um, so this is, of course, is in relation to sentient extinction. Many sentiocentric antinatalists are, in fact, in favor of stopping all of them from multiplying. So I'm, I, my question to you is, why would a silent planet be bad, in your opinion? And, you know, not all antinatalists are extinctionists, but that's certainly a, an element of antinatalism that's very real. Um, so what are your thoughts also about, you know, the subject of extinction? Um, okay, so um, I think that a silent planet, as uh, probably Earth would be one day, and it was maybe uh, uh, one day, and many other planets and stars are, I think that they are less valuable than, uh, than Earth as it is now, because I think that as we have things now, we have uh, beauty and joy and um, um, morality and knowledge and aesthetic experiences and all these are valuable things. For hum some of them relate more to humans or only to humans, but for animals too, I think that um, there is uh, something good in uh, a planet in which there are live things. Um, I think life is valuable and that uh, the experience of life, this I have no, uh, no evidence to present, but I think that for animals too, the experience of life may well be pleasant. So yes, a silent planet would, uh, would be worse, I think, than a non-silent uh, planet. A planet in which, uh, or a star, uh, a planet in which uh, we have people many of whom, as I see it, have good lives, 
then uh, would be certainly a better planet than a planet with no people. Um, I mean, I was going to bring this up a little later. I mean, this this this, this comment sort of more was formulated um, from listening to your interview with um, Stephanie Ruper uh, on YouTube. I watched that the other day. It's very interesting. Um, I, I, I don't believe that life... Um, I, I believe that where the value is in life is in sentience. It's this ability to, to feel. That's where all the value is. It's, and so it's not so much that I think life is, is meaningless. It's that we're sort of plagued with meaning. You know, our sentience uh, makes us vulnerable with all of this meaning. We're, we're, in, we're in harm's way all sentient creatures. We're born on this planet. We're thrown into all of this possibility of suffering. And so the idea of a silent planet is a, is a planet without harm. It's, it's without all of these precious living things that are full of all this vulnerability, you know, suddenly not being in harm's way anymore. And that's why a silent planet seems very nice <laughs> to, 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 to my ears. Um, do you have any thoughts on that kind of thinking about it? Um, yes, I think that indeed the sentience um, allows harm, but it also allows benefit, great benefits. And uh, I think that the benefits are also important. And as I think that there are a lot of benefits, maybe more benefits than harm, then I would take this as a package deal. I'm sorry for the bad parts of the package deal, but but yes, um, generally speaking, I, I, I would take this. Yes, uh, there's good and bad, but I think there's a lot of good. So all in all, I'll take I'll take the deal, just as I might take uh, I don't know an apartment, which is certainly not perfect, or I don't know um, I would take a course of study that is not perfect, and many other things. Yes. Okay. You're vulnerable when you do that. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, just going back to the idea of sentience, though, I mean, and and a, another quote from this paper. Um, you say, uh, nor does this argument, uh, if applied consistently, need to stop with animals or even with sentient beings. It is also true of plant species as well as rocks and mountains that they too could be put in various aspects of their existence uh, much better than, in fact, uh, are perhaps. Are bad. Sorry, I misquoted that a little bit. But you're saying that that plants, mountains, rocks, they could also be in a negative state. I, I just wanted to sort of clarify my, I, I don't believe that that's true because rocks and mountains and plants don't have sentience. They don't have this thing that could give them value. Uh, they do not suffer. They do not feel. Um, so they're not a problem, so to speak. But I'm, I'm very curious as to why you're saying this and, and what, why you believe without that, even without that sentience, they have the possibility of being in some sort of negative state, if I'm understanding you correctly. Right. So um, I've, uh, um, I've been in touch with quite a few uh, environmentalists, and uh, there are several schools there. One, one's important school says that we should take care of the environment because we're uh, damaging ourselves. Ourselves meaning also our children and grandchildren. 
but if we destroy all sorts of uh, beautiful sites or clean water, then our grandchildren would not be able to enjoy these beautiful, I know, uh, rocks, mountains, views, uh, forests, and if we poison the water, so on and so forth. Another school there accepts the, what the first school says, but also says that the environment has its own value in itself. So even if, um, I know there, were, there would be no problem, or even if we ignore the first problem, mountains, rocks, forests have value in themselves as well. So we shouldn't harm them even if, um, I don't know, God Almighty came and told us with complete certainty that no one would ever see those mountains and then um, if we destroy them, no one would ever uh, miss the ability to see those mountains. No, in, in that environmentalist streak, mountains and, and um, flowers and so on and so forth have, have a value of, its, of their own. So this is, uh, I, I kind of buy that. Um, maybe not kind of, I buy that. So I think they are valuable too. And uh, then I, I took uh, David Benatar's uh, argument, which talks about uh, the ability to think of higher standards about everything. We just have to use our imagination. And if we use our imagination, we can think how everything could be much, much, much better than it is. So the way it is now is not somewhere in the middle between bad and good, but if we think how good it could be, we see that it's much closer to bad in this spectrum or continuum. And so then I talked about it also as relating to, I don't know, canyons, like the Grand Canyon or rice part or so, so, so forth. This is the, the context of I, I did want to ask you a little bit. Of, I know that androcentrism is a, a, a big a favorite topic of yours. And I, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that um, Mark and I didn't have much um, familiarity with it before we investigated your works. Um, I, I just wanted to know if you, you would mind um, explaining your position um, and perhaps defining and, androcentrism a bit for us. Uh. Sure. Uh, uh, so um, my thoughts about androcentrism had to do with uh, the topic which uh, I wrote and thought about more before I, I uh, switched to focusing on meaning in life. And this is a feminist philosophy or feminist theory. And uh, there I actually mostly focused on, on one central topic, um, and uh, that was uh, the question of whether um, Western philosophy is androcentric. Now, andro means in Greek, I think, male. Uh, I myself do not know Greek, except yasu or suflaki. But uh, 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 and centricity or centrism uh, means that this is the standard or this is taken to be essential. So it's not very different from the way people would say, for example, that a certain discussion is uh, Europocentric in the sense that it takes its norms or uh, its focus or um, the most, it, uh, supposed that the most important things have to do 
with Europe and it um, ignores or slights or disrespects maybe non-European cultures. So this is a view about, um, about uh, the fact that uh, even without plain sexism in all sorts of laws that are discriminatory, much of our culture is, has been, is, was, uh, maybe still is uh, in many ways, uh, focused on, uh, uh, sometimes in implicit ways, focused on what is typically or tokenly male. And uh, I was interested in, in thinking about uh, the question of whether philosophy in general is androcentric. And my view was that um, it is androcentric in some ways, but it is not uh, pervasively androcentric. So yes, uh, people like Immanuel Kant uh, thought that, um, I don't know, women should not be granted voting rights and, and so on. And um, this uh, is clearly an androcentric part of his philosophy and there are many other things. But uh, I, um, I did, um, perhaps because of my leaning towards liberal feminism, I uh, did not think that uh, rationality itself is androcentric as we usually see it, many types of rationality. And I thought that many discussions in many philosophers are not androcentric. So the categorical imperative in Immanuel Kant, I, did, I do not see it as, as uh, androcentric. Um, um, when Aristotle says that women are lesser human, lesser beings than, than, than men, he is androcentric, but his theory of the four causes or his emphasis on tele teleology in itself, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, I, I don't think it is uh, androcentric. So my general view is that there are elements of androcentricity or andro androcentrism in philosophy, but, uh, but they're not pervasive. And we can use most of philosophy um, while rejecting the androcentric parts. That, that was my position. Would you, um, would you reject uh, standpoint theory in feminist epistemology? Um, I think I would reject some aspects of it. Some of it, okay. Yes, I would. Some. Do you think knowledge is socially positioned? I think it is socially positioned to an extent. Could you uh, could you expand on that a little bit more? Well, um, let's take uh, medicine. I think uh, that for uh, a long while uh, the research was. Um, um, the research and therefore the knowledge was modeled after the needs of men and not women. And um, um, it's probably not, uh, not a coincidence that uh, there are uh, so many contraceptives uh, that women can take and there are fewer that men can take. I mean, let's not give men, it's not that someone actually probably, I don't know, maybe it is, but I think that maybe no one actually, I don't know, thought to, to themselves, well, let's not think of a pill for men that would, I don't know, uh, do all sorts of 
thanks to men's hormonal system, let's let's concentrate on women's form, hormonal system and think of only of pills for women. Although there are some knowledge about the way that there are some risks with that and so on. So some aspects of medicine, for example, I think are guided by androcentric uh, um, uh, issues and um, and here standpoint theory, theory is correct. I think that many aspects of medicine are not like that. So, um, so it's like so a case, think, case kind of... Well, for example, uh, I think that um, most of what we know about the bones of, I don't know, about the knee structure of human beings is, is not... Um, um, Informed by any bias, by any androcentric biases, as far as I could see. So this was an epistemic analysis, right? Or was it also taking into uh, the institutions of knowledge sharing, acquisition, and processing? Like, were you also uh, addressing, say, like a an uh, an epistemic injustice? Uh, that could happen in, in institutions or in philosophy, or was it purely like mostly epistemic? It was mostly historical epistemic, not only historical, but contemporary. I tried to suggest various reasons for holding uh, much of philosophy to be pervasively androcentric. That and that would lead us to uh, think that we should um, present a as part of a generally counterculture, a feminist counterculture, we should also have a counter philosophy. We should have a feminist philosophy in the sense that we would have another philosophy which would be female or women oriented or maybe neutral, which would be very different from the philosophy that we have now. In a way, as care ethics is supposed to be maybe an alternative to justice ethics. I'm talking about Gilligan and... Right. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, and I suggested there that uh, a non-androcentric philosophy would be quite similar in many ways to the philosophy that we have today. So I was focusing only on that, I think that yeah. uh, issues of epistemic justice are very relevant and interesting, and we should think about them too. Uh, that was simply not the thing I focused on. Um, have you have you um, engaged with uh, Miranda Fricker's work in the in epistemic injustice? I I, I read it. Yes. Okay. I, I heard. What what, of- what did you think? Uh, of her view? Well, uh, <laughs> well, uh, uh, I think that um, she had powerful points. Some of her points I thought were powerful. Okay. What, what's the response been like with your work in, I'm um, probably going to pronounce it wrong, androcentrism? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. Um, well, first of all, I must say that there was not that much of a response. <laughs> Uh, many books come out, and uh, and um, there, there were there were some reviews, and most of the reviews I thought were by um, well I didn't think they were by um, uh, feminist uh, philosophers who 
identified more with radical feminism and with postmodernist feminism. And uh, they criticized what, what I suggested there. Um, however, if we look at history, of course, we don't have that much time since the book was, was published. I think that the way many, many philosophers, feminist philosophers work today in a way um, maybe confirms or, or uh, it's, at least is not in opposition to what I wrote because they use um, teleology or they use rationality as, uh, as um, male philosophy uh, used it. And uh, that might suggest that it, it's not androcentric. And um, uh, many uh, feminist philosophers also use what, what uh, uh, Gilligan called justice ethics. And um, um, at least up to now, I don't think that the feminist counter philosophy has been presented. What is presented is very, very similar to philosophy in general or male philosophy. So I don't think that most of it is really male philosophy. I think it's philosophy with some very, very bad parts in it, which are not essential to it. Yeah. That's the way I would see it. Okay, thank thank you. I appreciate um, appreciate your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is a fascinating subject, and I, I it's definitely one that I'd like to explore more. I know that you um, said you know previously that you didn't really have any thoughts about how there might be some intersection between this subject and antinatalism, um, but I, I have to think that there there might be, and I'd love to see that that explored further. Um, by, by somebody. I mean, I, 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 I think that antinatalism, and this is a controversial opinion to some, but I mean, it, it is, um, it does affect women uniquely. In a, I mean, women are the ones that get pregnant, you know, and so it, it's, um, and a great deal of antinatalist literature is in fact written by men. Um, and so as we move, you know, as antinatalism continues to grow and who knows where that will go, you know, um, I, I do think this will be be a a um, this will grow into a more important uh, topic, um, the androcentrism perhaps of, of antinatalism. Um, yeah, I believe you're right. Uh, well, thank you so much for your thoughts on, on all of that and for, for uh, explaining that. Um, before we end our, our our time together today, I did want to ask you a little bit about the Antinatalism Under Fire conference at which you were right. a special guest. Um, may I ask how you became involved with the conference? Well, uh, the organizer of the conference, uh, Professor David Cherney from uh, the Czech uh, Republic um, um, Academy of, of Science or, or Philosophy, I'm, I'm not certain about the exact affiliation, um, I think um, either heard or read some of what I wrote and uh, um, well, I also spoke of Benatar's uh, views uh, in, in all sorts of occasions, maybe he heard of that as well. And since most of the uh, conference uh, had to do not uh, only with antinatalism in general, but with Professor Benatar's views of, on antinatalism, he, he, he was there, he gave the plenary session. Um, 
then Professor Cherney decided also to invite me. So I was very glad to come. Amazing. I mean, I, uh, I'm very envious of, uh, of anybody who got to be there. It was a very exciting event to watch from the sidelines or, you know, to hear about from the sidelines. Um, I mean, I, what was the experience of the event like? It was a, a very interesting collection of people um, I know that were there. Yes, uh, well, I, I like the conference very much. Uh, um, it was a short conference. It was only a one-day conference, unfortunately. Um, and uh, there were people from all uh, around Europe, East and West, so uh, from Ireland, from Ireland to Russia, and also from places uh, outside of Europe. For example, I, I'm from outside of Europe, and um, uh, the the hall was, uh, it's not a huge hall, but it's, it was big enough and it was packed. And um, there was a lot of excitement in the air and uh, good excitement. I mean, no, not hostility or something or, or anger. Um, and um, it was a very good atmosphere and people, people came and, and, and talked and... Um, People asked them questions, and um, there was also a lot of discussion while in the breaks, breaks or uh, when when people uh, uh, had had lunch. Um, Prague itself is a very very beautiful city, so uh, it was a very very good conference. I was very happy to be there, and uh, I met many interesting people there, and we had good discussions. It was very enjoyable, very very developing. Wonderful. I'm happy to hear that. Um, I cannot help myself from asking, do you have any memory of um, a young Korean uh, man by the name of Joon Hung um, and his paper on pro-mortalism? I was curious if you had any yes. thoughts about that. Yes. Uh, um, I, uh, I, I, I remember him. After his paper, I, uh, I, uh, I approached him and um, I tried to communicate with him. It was a rather short and uh, maybe superficial communication. I felt he was not very interested in that. I even suggested to him that we would continue to communicate otherwise, because I thought that what he says uh, uh, would be interesting for me. I, I said that maybe what my thoughts might be relevant for him as well, but uh, um, that didn't uh, um, develop, unfortunately. And uh, I, I thought that the paper um, itself didn't have too many arguments and he was not very responsive to some of, of the questions that he, he was asked, but um, um, I, 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 liked, I, I liked to speak with him and I was sorry that things did not develop and I was sorry afterwards that um, his life ended as it did. Yeah, he was a dear friend of both of ours, and it's just lovely to, you know, hear people's memories of him, so I, I appreciate it. I didn't know that you knew him. Yeah, yeah know. you know, he, he, he had this incredible year of public-facing antinatalism. super active, yeah. He, he was only, I think, 22 years old, you know, and um, this was the one and only time he had presented that paper, or any paper, I think, you know, uh, mm -hmm. on antinatalism publicly. And, um, you know, he was a YouTuber, he was, he wrote a book, he started the Antinatalism magazine. So he had this incredible year of being this bright, shiny flame, you know, like producing and, and then he just, he just burned right out. So it was very, very sad. 
Yeah, I think his paper wasn't merely anti-natalist. No. Um, yeah. he, he supported other things as well. Pro-mortalism, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, well, thank you for your memory on that. Would you have any other memories of the conference or, or anything else you'd like to add about it? No, not really, except that <laughs> I remember it with fondness and I do not remember that way all the conferences I go to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it was a great atmosphere and, and I thought very good scholarship, very interesting. Wonderful. All right. Well, I, I so hope that they do something or somebody does something similarly to that in the, in the future. Yeah. Um, um, as somebody who is, of course, extremely interested in the subject of the meaning of life, do you find antinatalism and the fact that people are drawn to it uh, particularly alarming? Uh, no. Um, well, you know, uh, we're in philosophy and the business of philosophy is the pursuit of truth. And yes. to pursue truth, you should uh, present your arguments and uh, reflect on them and um, hear other people's arguments, preferably those opposing your views and reflect on them. So no, there, I don't, I'm not alarmed by that. I don't see anything alarming about uh, thinking um, uh, as one should think uh, about, about one views, one's own views and other views critically in, in all directions. If anything is alarming is, um, well, it's trying to shut up other people's views, which people sometimes don't like or, or disrespecting or humiliating uh, people who have other, other views, but no, um, this is all very interesting and we should all uh, learn and, and hear what other people say and think about it and learn and develop that way. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, what do you think about the idea of antinatalism bringing meaning to a person's life? Uh, being, an an yeah. being an antinatalist, I mean, I think I can speak for both Mark and myself, has brought a lot of meaning to both of our lives. I don't think that we're people without other meaning besides that. I mean, I, I, I'm an artist. I, I, I'm not short on terrestrial meaning uh, in my own personal life. Um, but, you know, the idea of protecting people essentially from experiencing suffering, you know, prevention brings a lot of meaning to, I think, a lot of people's lives. Yeah. Yes, I, I, it seems to me, yeah, natural to say that, yeah, or to think or to view to all this, yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, do you think a belief in the value of the meaning of life necessitates that new people be created? Should we sacrifice new individuals to the altar of meaning, essentially? Well, this brings me to some of the questions that, uh, that we talked about earlier. Um, so, um, well, I think that if we want to have meaning in life, then uh, we need life. And uh, if we think that, uh, and usually it would be probably more human life, and if we think that there is a high probability that many people will have meaningful lives, then maybe we should, uh, we should believe in procreation. However, if the price is too high, if the price is too high, maybe we should think about it again. So maybe it is true that in order to have meaning, we need to have procreation. But because the price is too high, we should give up procreation and meaning. Um, the, the, the two views may not be in conflict. 
and um, and um, I think uh, we should think more about the price. I should think more about the price. Yes. Um, if people are interested in the philosophy of meaning of, um, I guess, just meaning in general or meaning of life, um, what thinkers um, would you recommend people um, or books you would recommend? Uh, well, I think that um, um, the classic is is Thaddeus uh, Schmetz. He's probably the most important person who wrote about this. Uh, he has many publications and he in a way opened up this uh, in analytic philosophy. He, he is the person who is responsible for this uh, either renaissance or simple birth, not rebirth, but birth of this topic of uh, what David Benatar calls analytic existentialism. Uh, so I, I would certainly recommend uh, his book, Meaning in Life from uh, 2013. Um, it is a very, very detailed book. Um, he's a very, some of the book relates to issues that I'm less interested in, but still he writes very well about them, such as um, um, theism and meaning in life. He's, he's very busy with that. Uh, but it, I think it's an excellent book and it is very widely pub, uh, cited. And um, uh, his earlier work also and later work also is certainly worth reading, uh, very much worth reading. And um, another book which is easier and uh, uh, more popular and also very well cited and important, I think, is uh, uh, Susan Wolf's 2010 book, Meaning in Life and Why It Matters. And it's a shorter book much shorter and much easier. And um, uh, there are some uh, uh, criticism and remarks uh, of several scholars and her reply. And uh, I would certainly recommend it. Um, these are uh, two books I would, I would recommend. Uh, there are articles uh, by um, a Finnish philosopher called Antti Kapunin that uh, I think are interesting. Very interesting and good. Um, I uh, I um, kind of like also uh, my own book, Meaning in Life. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World, which is supposed also to help people. So um, it is uh, written uh, also with with a view of uh, uh, helping people who think who take their lives not to be meaningful to see whether they're really not meaningful. But uh, I'm sure that I'm biased in that. And um, um, I think that The Human Predicament uh, is also in a way a book about meaning in life, not only also about pleasure in life and other things, but there are many sections there about meaning in life. It talks about different kinds of meaning. It's certainly a book worth reading. Uh, I would start with those, and there are also good collections. And um, uh, the classical collection by uh, um, Klemke, I don't remember his first name, um, uh, which came out in a few editions, is certainly well worth reading, and it's a very good introduction to different views on the topic. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, was there any other uh, 
areas or topics or any comments you want to make that we we may have missed? Um, none that I can think of. Wonderful. Well, uh, you know, this has been really very, very wonderful. Uh, where can people find your books, uh, continue to support your work? Uh, do you have a website? Anything you'd like to plug? Um, no, I don't have a website. I'm even not on, uh, on uh, Facebook, not to talk of Twitter or other stuff. I'm a real dinosaur, unfortunately, in that way. <laughs> Maybe not only in that way. If people ask me about my book, I tell them to, to go to electronic shops. That's what I... <laughs> okay, that's totally cool. Okay, well, uh, you know, thank you so much for your time today you and for much. being our, our guest on these. Yeah, we had a wonderful time and you've given us a lot to think about. Yeah. And uh, this was this was really great. Uh, so thank you for being our guest today on the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. And uh, yeah, just thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure for me. You can purchase Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World and Is Philosophy Androcentric on Amazon. Links below to find other papers by Ido Lando as well. The grand opening matinee event for Antinatalism International's inaugural year of the Antinatalist Film Festival is December 1st at 1 p.m. CST or 7 p.m. GMT. On December 1st, the festival will stream on the Antinatalism International YouTube channel, the Antinatalism International Facebook page, and there will also be a live Zoom room open for the duration of the event where viewers can come hang out, discuss the films, and celebrate the opening of the festival as the films air for the first time. All participating films will also be made available on the Antinatalism International website. The final day of the festival is December 31st. However, the closing party and awards ceremony will not take place until Sunday, January 2nd on Zoom. More information on the awards ceremony event as we move closer. More news on the film festival coming extremely soon. We are so excited to present to all of you, truly, some of the finest video work that the antinatal world has to offer. Thank you to all of the talented antinatalist filmmakers that helped make this first year of the festival possible. Please email me with any questions at antinatalnews at gmail.com and please check the links below for more info. Thank you for listening to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. This has been Amanda Old Fansukunik and Mark J. Maharaj. You can find us on the YouTube channels Antinatal Wolf and Question Mark, respectively. Keep up with my daily antinatalist news updates at Antinatal News on Twitter. Please follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon.com, RSS Feed, and so many other platforms. You can email us at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com. Our website, www.exploringantinatalism.com, was designed by the incredible Visions Noirs. Please follow him at www.bilenoir.com and also join his Instagram. Logo art by the incredible Life Sucks. Please subscribe to him on YouTube, and if you would perhaps like to purchase some of his incredible merch, Merch. Check it all out at www.etsy.com slash shop slash life sucks publishing. Music by the one, the only, I doubt it. Subscribe to him on YouTube and check out our collaborative project along with our friend Eiffel WV, The Right to No Longer Exist, which includes the podcast, The Right to No Longer Exist, A Right to Die podcast. All the best and bye for now.